appreciate uh, the way that everyone is, is so graciously dealing with the mask situation. Um, I know that it is not easy to sing through these things. I know that it can feel restrictive, and um, on hot days especially, that you'll be sweating under your mask, and you'll wish that you could not wear the mask, but we do appreciate the fact that you're showing love to uh, those around you who uh, are perhaps more uh, concerned about contracting the virus than you are, or perhaps more vulnerable to uh, contracting the virus. So this is, this is a small price that we would gladly pay in order to be together as a church and to be worshiping our God uh, in person together. As promised, we will be returning to Ephesians chapter 2 today uh, as we progress through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. But before we get there, I want to read to you a small passage from the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. John, who is the beloved disciple, has been taken up in a, a vision of sorts. He finds himself in the heavenly throne room of God. First, John witnesses the exalt, exalted God there. He sees him in his glory. He is seated upon a throne, and his appearance is radiant and beautiful, almost too much for words to describe. Positioned around that throne are 24 elders, rulers, who sit around the throne of the Almighty God, subservient to Him. And these rulers give honor and praise to God, while four majestic attending angels hover about the Lord and sing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a stunning scene. And then as John looks on, the beginning of a divine drama begins to play out before his eyes. And so in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There is a great dilemma. Some magnificent, important truth is ready to be revealed and declared. It is something that needs to be known. It is something that must be communicated from God to man. And yet here stands in the way of the knowledge that man needs to know seven special royal seals. Now in the days of Christ, when a ruler would send a special message that was meant only for authorized eyes, they would write it upon a scroll, and then they would take a dollop of wax to seal the scroll, and in that hot wax, they would press a signet ring which belonged only to them, almost like an official signature of the king. And that signature, when pressed into the wax, would bind by law the words sealed within. If anyone broke that seal who was not authorized to do so, they could be punished greatly for doing so. And so you get this feel that this scroll is, in, is enclosed in it, something very, very important, something vital for people to know, but only one who is pure, who possesses great power, only one who is authorized and able can open the scroll and can reveal its critical contents. And here is the sadness of the moment. There is no one found anywhere who can accomplish the task. John, in an interesting reaction here, 
begins to weep with regret that no one can be found who is worthy to reveal that which must be known of God's mercy and justice. When it comes to salvation, friends, a similar dilemma faces sinful man. Because we have violated the law of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there is a great barrier that stands in between us and a knowledge of what is good and holy and just. We cannot know God because the truth has been sealed away from us. We don't deserve to know God because we have all broken His holy commandment. We don't deserve His justice and the peace that comes when He is rightly on the throne. And there is no way for us to unveil that which has been sealed away from us because of our iniquity. Is there anyone holy enough, anyone powerful enough, anyone who cares for our sinful souls to such a degree that he can overcome this barrier and bring us near again to the God that we have rejected, to the God who has every right to cast us away? We will see this morning that Christ alone is able. There are certain things that only Jesus can do. And while we are incompetent to save ourselves, He has the power and the ability to accomplish this great task. We will learn this morning that Christ alone is worthy. That no created thing can match the qualifications of Jesus Himself. And apart from Him, there is no one who can do what He alone can do. The offerings of His life is more than enough to satisfy justice and to free us from our sin. We're going to learn this morning that Christ alone is willing to do this. Because of the great love with which He loves us, it is His will, a will that is 100% unified with the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is His will to save sinners for Himself. These three categories will appear throughout the sermon today as we work through Ephesians chapter 2. We're going we're to try to digest 11 through 22 today. And we're going to supplement those verses with a number of additional scriptures to see that Jesus alone is able, worthy, and willing to save us. We've already sifted through Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in our study of the five solas thus far. So far, the verses have declared that we are saved only by grace. Salvation is a free gift of God to those who weren't even looking for it. The favor of God is in no way merited by those who receive it. We don't deserve this gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 went on to explain that faith is the way that God gets us to that grace. The faith that we need to trust this grace, this graceful work of God is also a heavenly gift from His hand. Being given to us, it is not of our works, to secure grace, God gives us faith, and through that faith, we receive the grace that He also has to give. But the man of faith, as we learned at the end of last week's sermon, will surely do good works as a product of the faith that God has put into him. It is evidence of the transformation that God is making come to pass. But there is still more that we need to understand. Where does grace come from? Who is our faith founded upon? It proceeds from and is founded upon only one, Jesus, the object of our faith. And so we will continue to examine Ephesians 2. We're going to start with verse 11. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to be open as we read together, I will read out loud. Follow along in the scripture you have before you. 
starting with verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Would you bow your heads with me as we pray and ask God's blessing over our time in the Word this morning? Holy God, we would be fools to come to this on our own power and knowledge and to try to understand the eternal truths that are written in these pages, which are an incredibly complicated mystery to those who do not have the Spirit. But Father, we also come grateful knowing that our eyes have been opened by that same Spirit. For those who trust your Son, Jesus Christ, it is no longer our intellect's task to discern truth, but now we trust in you and you make it possible, God, for us to know you. you. You break down that dividing wall. And that which was not only a mystery to us, but was undesirable to us, is now to us vital. It is bread for us. We feast upon it. And so I pray that you would strengthen us this morning and give us your grace as you show us your glory. We love you, God. And to you alone be all the glory as we study these things and apply them in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. As Ephesians 2 progresses, Paul addresses specifically the Gentiles who are a part of the church there in Ephesus. They become a part of the body of Christ, but that was not always the case for them. Before God had given them faith and before that faith was brought uh, by the gift of God's grace, they were completely estranged from God and they were subject to His wrath. Their sins had earned them His anger. And with a few exceptions, the great majority of us here in this room today and probably watching on the screens as well, are likely from equivalent Gentile heritage. And so these words are particularly applicable to us. Having pointed out the importance of grace and faith, Paul urges them to keep in mind a very important set of facts. Remember, Paul says, that you were separated from Christ. So there was a divide between the Gentile world and the Messiah that God sent. They didn't know who he was or what he was about. They didn't have any connection with this one that God had promised hundreds of years before. They were alienated from him. They were alienated also from the commonwealth of Israel, from this chosen people that God historically used to show himself to a lost world. They were not connected to Israel. In fact, they were considered unclean by Israel. 
They were strangers to the covenants of promise which belonged to Israel, God's chosen people. And so these covenant promises which carry so much important blessing for for us who know the Lord God, they were far from the Gentiles. The Gentiles had no idea about these promises and if they were to be able to intellectually grasp them, they would know farewell that they, they didn't apply to the Gentiles. They applied only to those people who were specially chosen of God. And so therefore, fourthly, they were without hope. They didn't have a promise from God that there was more to life than what they saw before them. They were wandering through life without God. And in many ways, as we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw pictures and snapshots of this, didn't we? As Solomon the preacher experienced life trying to to gain fulfillment and purpose apart from God, and again and again and again he saw how vain that attempt was. That's where the Gentiles were prior to their redemption. Paul could have said even more than this, couldn't he have? He could have said, you were subject to the wrath of God. You deserved hellfire because of your sinfulness. You were deceived with no light of discernment. You didn't even know how lost you were. You weren't aware of the danger that you were in. You were morally confused. You called that which was wicked good. You set false standards that didn't reflect the good standards of God. You were slaves in your sin. You couldn't help but do what was wicked. He could have said so much more about them. But instead, he focuses on the relational aspects of their lostness. Notice that. He focused on the fact that their sin created divide between them and the person of God. This is the greatest consequence of our sin, is that we are separated from the one who is himself love. The fact that sin alienates us from a right relationship with God in and of itself should be enough to make us desperate for his grace. That was the past of those Gentiles there in in Ephesus. Verse 13, but now. This marks a change, doesn't it? The relationship between God and these Gentiles has drastically transformed, and it's all thanks to the work of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We read again, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What has washed away our sins, brothers and sisters, and broken the seal that kept us from knowing the living God? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, without a doubt, salvation is a Trinitarian accomplishment. You know, the Trinity refers to the three persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They're not three separate gods. They are three persons who exist in one being. And salvation involves all three of these persons. God the Father's role is described in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us. Who is he talking about there? The Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the the beloved. So before the foundation of the world, before anything was spoken into physical existence, Paul tells us here that the Father had chosen a people to make his own. He knew that man would sin. He was not oblivious to that. And yet he also planned a way to be glorified through the process of man's fall 
and redemption. Our fall would not prove God a failure. It was not evidence that God was out of control. Rather, it was ordained by God. God determined to overcome sin, to triumph over it, and to make his enemies his own children by predestining them to adoption as sons and daughters. So this is one of the roles that God plays in our salvation. He chooses us. He predestines us. He elects us. What does, the, what does the Holy Spirit do in salvation? Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not but because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This passage is speaking of the coming to life of a dead spirit, a critical aspect of our conversion, which the Holy Spirit works in us. Though you might have heard the gospel a hundred times, there was finally a time when the gospel was preached or proclaimed or explained, and then the third person of the Trinity did a work inside of you that opened your eyes to it. And suddenly it wasn't that foolish mystery that never made sense. Suddenly, it opened your eyes to your sin and you were aghast at what you had done to break God's command. Suddenly, you had a heavy heart. You were burdened by it to the point of repentance. The Spirit does the work of revitalizing our heart so that our sin becomes sickening to us and we can humbly seek forgiveness from God. Ephesians 1 describes this as well in verses 13 and 14. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Since God cannot fail at what he decides to do, once you are regenerated, the Holy Spirit, which now dwells with you, works as a guarantee that you belong to God. We have assurance because he has signed our salvation with the Spirit. You've been purchased by God, and the proof of that is in the presence of this third person of the Trinity, which dwells in you, which is helping us to become a new type of temple where the Spirit dwells, not in a tent or in a building, but in the hearts of redeemed men and women. The Holy Spirit is active in our sanctification as we go about with him. Romans 15, 16 declares this. It refines our faithfulness over time. And also we'll be instrumental in the resurrection of the saints in the last day, according to Romans 8.11. Do you see the unified work of each member of the Trinity here? Surely Father, Son, and Spirit play active roles in the process of our salvation. But to be exceedingly clear, we, as sinners, owed a grave debt. The debt that earned us death had to be overcome if there was to be hope for us to be reconciled to God. And that debt was paid by Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is a Trinitarian work, but the sacrificial act that saved us was specifically the responsibility of Jesus the Son. Because we owe death, Christ came in human flesh. He took in an earthly body like ours. He lived on earth as a human so that he could die in that flesh. Because we deserve to suffer, Christ allowed himself to suffer on our behalf. And in doing so, the Son of God took on an exclusive role that is essential to the process of our salvation. Our relationship with God was broken 
So Jesus had to bridge the gap. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 describes this beautifully. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is exclusively only one mediator between God and man. You know what a mediator is, right? A mediator is one who can go between two parties, one who can work without disparity between two entities and help bridge the gap that separates them. When two cannot reconcile, when two cannot be brought near to one another, a mediator comes between and builds a path to reconciliation. No one else is able. No one besides Jesus is worthy to work this important reconciliation. The Gentiles would have remained estranged had it not been for Christ reconciling them to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him sin who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When it says here that Jesus knew no sin, this points out the uniqueness of the life of Christ lived once he took on a human body. In every way, shape, and form, Jesus was faithful to the law of God as he dwelt among sinful people. This doesn't mean that Jesus was oblivious to sin. It doesn't mean that he never heard the news of sin, that he never saw the evidence of sin, or that he was never affected by the consequences of other people's sin. Of course he knew about sin. In fact, no one else in history has known more intimately about sin, uh, the sin of man, than Christ has. For Jesus was willing to take the sin of every believer onto himself so that he could bear the right punishment for our sins on the cross. Jesus didn't die for sins that he committed. He was sin-free. Because he himself owed no debt to God the Father, he was a worthy substitute. He qualified to offer his spotless life in place of ours. Hebrews 9.12 says, He, meaning Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. The redemption that comes from his is eternal. There never needs to be another sacrifice added to it or to supplement it. This is a completed work. By offering his own life as a sacrifice for sin, he put to rest once and for all the need for us to be atoned for. His sacrifice was not just a first step. It didn't just introduce us to redemption. It was the totality of our transformation. He needs no help from us, for he has completed the task. It is finished. So understand this, friends. Salvation for human beings is like a spectator sport. I know many of you are longing for sports. Others of you have realized you don't really need sports like you thought you did before. And that's a good thing, too. But when you watch your team and you're cheering them on and something goes right and everything on the field falls in place and your team wins, who won the game? It wasn't you. You might say, we won, and high-five the person next to you. But trust me, you didn't win that game. You witnessed the game being won. You might think, but my cheers, they, they urged them on. Who's getting the Super Bowl ring? It's not going to show up in the mail. You can stop waiting now. You did not win the contest. You were a spectator. You watched as it happened. 
What do I do to be saved? I behold. I watch in admiration as the most glorious being of all time willingly suffers in my place. As every sin that I've ever committed is placed upon his shoulders and as the blood flows from his scored skin, I watch in wonder. And I think, why would a God who is so perfect love a sinner like me to such a degree? I behold the power of what Christ can do. Feel free to cheer as spectators of salvation. But know this, even without your cheers, Jesus will be glorified. We do not earn our salvation in any way. We don't contribute to it one iota. Returning to Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself, in himself, one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Solus Christus declares that Jesus stands as the only mediator who can reconcile us to God, and yet so many people deny this truth by clinging to the idea that by doing good deeds, by working harder and doing our best to keep God's law, we will somehow earn our salvation or contribute to its completion. Look on Romans 5, verses 17, 19, where Paul gives us the answer to this wrong thinking. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, who's he speaking about there? Who's trespass? Adam's. Through Adam's one sin, all men have now subsequently sinned. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Who is he talking about now? The second Adam, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is representative glory, friends. Just as a a fan who's standing in the stands and screaming his head off at a Niners game gets to feel the glory of what's going on, so too do we get to see and experience the glory of God saving us by his work. Paul does not say here, your many acts of righteousness will reconcile you. He says, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life. Christ is able and Christ is willing because of his great love to suffer on our behalf, to accomplish what you and I cannot accomplish on our own. And by doing this, he has abolished the law and its demands by fulfilling them himself. As we work this out, we consider the great helplessness we have in our own salvation. The feeling might pop up in your mind. You might think to yourself, what if it's really hard for me to let someone else do that much work for me? It's hard for me to receive generosity. I, I struggle, I squirm underneath it when someone tries to do something nice for me. I, I don't know that I, if I can accept Jesus as Lord because I can't stand the idea that, that I'm not doing anything for myself. It's difficult for me to just receive, receive, receive. 
If God is calling you to be a Christian, you have no choice, friend. You must get used to this dependence. Your life will from this time on, from the time of your repentance, be a life of dependence upon God. And there is no alternative for that. Christ must be the object of your faith. By the work of Jesus, you will no longer be a stagnant little puddle trying to make something out of the mess that you made that is your life. You are now a stream if you are in Christ. The love of Christ flows into you and the love of Christ flows out of you to others. The water of life doesn't start in you. You are not a well. It is supplied by God. You are evermore a channel for the power of Christ or you are powerless. And you may reason, but God knows how hard that would be for me. He will make an exception. He will not, friend. For at the heart of your dilemma is the very pride that seeds every sin you commit against the Father. If you are not powerless before Him in humility, you will be powerless underneath Him in condemnation. That is the weight of the gospel. For God is set on conquering sin and you cannot change His mind. You cannot mediate for yourself. There is only one who can. Christ will stand for you. Over the lifespan of God's church, there will be many who draw near to the church, who play along with the religious lifestyle of the church. They learn to speak in a Christian language. They say amen at the right moments. They give money to the cause. And yet still, holding their freedoms as precious to them, to the point that they have no savior but themselves. What a sad confused state when a man or woman says amen to the culture of Christianity but no to the lordship of Christ himself. John 5, 39-40 You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Where is life? It is only in Christ and the scriptures attest to this. Consider for a moment the long list of things that man tries to add to the work of Christ so that in some small way we might think that we play a part in what Jesus alone is able, worthy, and willing to do. We cannot view salvation as Christ plus the intercession of the saints. <clears throat> Christ has not died on the cross and then waiting uh, for one of the saints to vouch for you. That's, it's not necessary. We cannot view salvation as Christ plus the seven special sacraments of the church. It is not Jesus plus the treasury of merits that we build up for ourselves or that others have built up on our behalf. It is not Christ plus the good favor of Mary, his mother. It is not Christ plus my good works, which I diligently have disciplined to do. It is not Christ plus my reformed confessions of faith no matter how accurately they might match the Scripture. It is not Christ plus my confessional preaching. I am not earning my spot in heaven right now before you. I will see you in heaven one day, I pray. And if that is true, it is not because of anything I did or you did. It's because of the work of the powerful one that I preach about right now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is not Christ plus the church tradition and approval that saves me. We add nothing to him. It is Christ alone. 
Douglas Van Dorn, a pastor from Colorado, has a really interesting observation about this impulse in man to try and work his way to heaven despite the clear testimony of Scripture that that isn't possible. In Genesis 28, you might recall from your Old Testament readings that Jacob has a vision where God affirms a covenant that he had made with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. He sees a ladder going up into heaven. And at the top of the ladder is God himself, which is really interesting because Scripture tells us no one has seen God. And it says if we see God, we are destroyed by him. The vision of it would just annihilate us. So who could be at the top of that ladder if it's God? Could it be Christ? Could it be the incarnate Christ? Van Dorn notes that mankind tends to think of reconciliation with God as a kind of ladder. How can we, by our own efforts, ascend one rung at a time, work after work, upward, heavenward, so that we might be near to this God who stands at the top? And then he cites three kinds of ladder climbing that is common to man. He says there's moralism, first and foremost. This is when man's will seeks to achieve perfection of conduct. They hope that by good rules and obedience to those rules, they can impress a God who is himself holy and pure, and then that God might want us also as holy and pure rule followers to come into his heaven with him. That's moral rungs of the ladder. Another way that we try to climb the ladder is through speculation. We try to achieve perfection of understanding by diligent study and by careful consideration and by philosophizing about what God might be like and how we might be near to him, how we might please him with our thoughts and our theologies. A third type of rung on this ladder of, of self-reconciliation uh, is mysticism. The soul seeks to achieve reconciliation through some sort of emotional experience. If we could just create an environment where I feel God in ways that I don't normally feel Him, if I have these unique moments of aha and insight, then maybe I'm getting closer to being near to God. Maybe one day God will let this spiritual being into His spiritual heaven. But Van Dorn sees in John 1.51 a connection to the vision that Jacob had in Genesis 28. John 1.51 and he, Jesus, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus, could it be that he is literally describing himself as the ladder that reaches to heaven? That there is no other way to get there but by him? We see it also in John 3, 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man. And so we, friends, cannot climb our way up. We don't go up. Who comes down for us? Christ descends for us. We cannot make our way to heaven. So he humbles himself and takes on flesh and dwells with us so that we might know the glory of, the, of God the Father, so that we might be redeemed by his sacrifice, so that his perfect body might be crushed instead of ours is that when our earthly body withers and dies and goes away, that by the same resurrection by which Christ was raised, we might also walk in a newness of life that is not disposable, but is eternal. Amen to the Lord God for this wonderful salvation that he wins in our lives. And so man wants to see other ways. He wants to be able to climb his way up to heaven on his own merits. But who else could have done what Christ alone did? Who else is free from sin? From the moment he was conceived in the womb, 
Jesus was absolutely free of iniquity. And yet we are sinful from our mother's womb, says David in the Psalms. Who else could have so perfectly defended himself from the temptations of the devil in the wilderness? Levied after 40 days of fasting, the whole world was offered him. All glory. Do you think we would be able to resist that? Jesus did. Who else displayed power over death? Not another human being knows how to do that. Christ dominates death. Christ shows that death has no sting. It is no longer a threat to his people. Who else could face the greatest suffering a being has ever experienced and do so with great courage and resolve? There were ways out on the path to the cross all along Christ's progression. Jesus could have taken any one of those ways out. The enemy tried to tempt him with alternative glory after the 40 days in the wilderness. Peter tried to convince him that it was unheard of that he should die. The crowds wanted to make him an earthly king after he fed the multitudes. They wanted to crown him and give him an earthly kingdom. Pontius Pilate practically begged Jesus to say anything that would help Pilate let him off the hook. Even the unrepentant thief on the cross tried one last time to convince Jesus to simply call upon the hosts of heaven to vindicate him and bring him off of his suffering. And Jesus took no way out. He knew what he had to do, and he was determined to follow it to its conclusion. Any human being would have buckled. Any human being would have taken one of those escapes. Only Christ could face this execution and become sin for us. No one else could do it. Consider the ways that Jesus describes what he is to the church. His own words about himself. If you read through the Gospel of John, you will notice several important patterns in this book. One of the most significant is the seven I am statements of John. The words I am are very significant in and of themselves, aren't they? Because I am is the holy and personal name, the most sacred name of God in heaven. We sometimes say Yahweh as our understanding of its interpretation. But listen to how Jesus describes himself throughout the book of John. In chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Bread being the most essential nutrient that sustains our being. He says, I am the bread of life. If you don't have me, you don't have life. You can be nourished by physical bread. You can be nourished by good health and, and faithful practices. But if you don't have me, you're starving to death. And in chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. There is no vision of truth. We can't understand anything rightly unless we have the light of Christ shining into our eyes and mind. In chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the gate or the door to the sheep pen. In other words, there's this group of people that belong to Christ by election. And if you don't come through me, you don't belong in there. You're not one of, Christ, you're not one of God's. He says, you can only get there by me. You can't climb over the fence. You can't get in through the back door. There's no other method by which you become one of God's people. In chapter 10, also, he says, I am the good shepherd. We need guidance. We need protection. And Jesus alone provides what we need in that regard. Chapter eleven twenty-five. he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Our hope for eternal existence only lands on Christ because no one else can conquer the grave. Ecclesiastes taught us that. Chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a parallel to the gate I am, that we have to go through Christ to get to the Lord. Don't let anyone tell you that there are hundreds of ways to God. As long as you're faithful in your path, then you will get there. Christ himself says, no, there is only one way. You need Jesus or you don't have hope. 
verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. If you are not connected to the true vine, if you do not abide in him, then you are cut off from life. There is no hope if you are not a part of the vine of Christ. And of course, the most bold I am statement that Jesus makes, he makes to the Pharisees and almost gets him killed. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He is identifying himself with the Yahweh of salvation, the Yahweh of Old Testament reconciliation, who brought the slaves out of Egypt and made them a special people and gave them a place of their own. This is the Jesus that Paul speaks of. In Ephesians again, chapter 2, verse 18, For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We've heard that before, right? In, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Christ is the cornerstone of our salvation. And apart from him, the whole structure has no hope of standing. He alone is able. He alone is worthy. He alone is willing. By love, he has chosen to give this gift freely to us. Maybe, church, we profess Solus Christus, but do we worship Jesus as though he is enough, as if he is sola, as if he is the only one that deserves the, the praise and the worship that we have to give to him? Do we live our lives as if we are not only convinced that we are saved through Jesus Christ alone, not only convinced, but do we rejoice in the truth of that doctrine? What a relief when God turns on the light and we can see the truth of the things we just learned. This was powerfully illustrated for us just recently in the life of our church body. Many of you have been praying for Sandy Ryther. Sandy has a rare form of cancer that has seriously threatened her health for years now. She's gone through surgeries in the past, and just recently she had a very massive surgery in which they had to go in and take out the tumor again, which had grown back. After the surgery, uh, they didn't get everything that was in there, but they were planning to go back in for a follow-up surgery, but things quickly turned south. On a Sunday after church, I got a phone call, pray for mom. It's from Megan. They don't know what's wrong, but her blood levels are way off, and there's something not right. And so we began praying as a church, and it became very clear that there was a problem with the surgery that had been done. There was a hole in her bowel causing stuff that shouldn't be in your body cavity to leak into your, her body, body cavity. And there was a leak in the graft, which was causing that poison to mingle with her blood. She had gone septic. They needed to get back in. They needed to patch those problems. And there was no guarantee that she was going to make it out alive. This infection had so weakened her that she was very, very much so vulnerable. We waited and we prayed and we asked the Lord to have mercy. We wanted God to save Sandy. And through those several days of waiting, I, I tried to imagine what it must have been like to be Eric, Sandy's husband, and how difficult it had to be 
to know that the one you love, the one you have vowed to love till the end, is in such a vulnerable state, and you have no power to overcome it. To know that you would give your very life, if possible, to save hers, but to know that's not even an option. To know that no matter how much you search for a solution, the solution's just not floating out there, we just gotta find it. No, that's not the problem. The problem is that we can't control what is happening in her body right now, and so we prayed. Can you picture the tremendous relief? And I don't think that word even does the feeling justice. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure the huge sense of relief when Eric finds out that despite the fact that neither he nor the doctors nor anyone else could figure out a way to reverse this setback, her leg had grown cold, it was technically dead, they were convinced they were going to have to cut off at least part of the leg and probably take all of her leg and half of her pelvis out in order to give her a chance at survival. And that surgery is so traumatic that the chances of her making it through that survival or that, that surgery were very slim. But to find out the next day that somehow, some way, there was warmth in her leg again and that the doctors had no way of knowing how, each one of the three surgeons who were in charge of her procedure said the word miracle to her, or to, to Eric and to Megan. And so they called and said, we're tentative, but we're praying. There seems to be hope. And to see the next morning when we didn't get a regression, but instead now the toes are warm and she's able to wiggle her toes. And there are a lot of traumas in this that I'm leaving out. But friends, God lifted that burden from Eric's shoulders. He could do nothing. It was all in God's hands. And God chose in his mercy to give Sandy a second chance. She never went into surgery again because of what God did. And she is at home today recovering because of what God did. Amen. Do you realize that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that what God did for Eric and Sandy is a picture of sorts for what Christ has done for your even more serious problem, for your sin problem, that if not remedied, was going to lead you to hell eternally? Do you realize the weight and the burden that is lifted knowing that this problem that you could not solve was solved in Christ Jesus apart from your power, apart from your ability? Only he could overcome it. If not solus Christus, how could there even be a doctrine of perseverance of the saints? We have confidence that our salvation will last to the end because it is not on us. It's not on my weakness. It's not on me who can barely keep my life in order. It's on Christ who orders all things eternally, in whom all things consist. We have assurance because it is all solus Christus. And so in closing, let us return to Revelation 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What is impossible for man is by no means impossible for the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel himself. Repent today. 
If you do not know him, throw yourself at the feet of Christ and realize that it is only through his atoning work that you can be reconciled to God, that you can have the crushing weight of your own sin lifted off of your shoulders, and that you can be free in Jesus, that you can walk the rest of your life thankful that he has loved you so much that he would give you a gift that you could not earn a gift that you do not deserve. And through that gift, you are loved and reconciled to the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and you belong to him forever. Repent. May today be the day of salvation. And if you are Christ, then rejoice in the relief that you have knowing that he did this and he is worthy of praise. Bow your heads with me as we pray. God, we thank you for the joy that we have in proclaiming solus Christus, No one else, Lord God, no one else deserves anything that we have to give like you do. Father, we praise you that you arose from the ashes of our despair, that you shined through the darkness of our hopelessness. You made a way to heaven where we could never climb a ladder to get to you. You came to us. So praise be to your holy name. We are humbly grateful for all that you provide for us today, Lord God. And may we spend the rest of this day so, so blown away by your amazing grace. May we enjoy the faith that you have put into our hearts and may we pray for it to increase day by day as you mature us and make us more like this Christ who is the object of our every praise and worship. I pray, Lord God, that as others see this transformation in us, that they would not just see some ho-hum religion, but that they would see people transformed by the amazing Son of God. Your act split history in two, Lord God. May your act of sacrifice and resurrection bring together that which seemed impossibly separate. Thank you, God, for reconciling sinful man to holy God. We love to be near to you. Help us to rejoice this day in the fact that it is all to your glory. We pray this through the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Amen.